Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I am here today with Dr. Bradley Campbell. You should definitely watch the first episode we did. I am super excited to have you back on. I learned so much the last time, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. He is a a chiropractic internist, holistic physician based outside of Chicago with a ridiculous number of postgraduate degrees and uh, techniques that he's certified in and that he is continuing to do as well. How are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, just got done with a good 12 hours of patience and uh, (laughs) do some more teaching. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, we are grateful to have you here to do that. So one of the things I really wanted to dive into is that around the current, uh, you know, C virus, as you typically refer to it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sad that we have to speak in code these days, but that does seem to be the the world we live in. Um, (laughs) But yeah, around this, there seems to be a lot of confusion about what viruses actually are. Um, And there seems to be also a big debate that's kind of cropped up about the, um, I guess the veracity of whether or not this actually is a virus or whether or not, you know, viruses in the way that we're taught or typically think even exist. So (laughs) I was hoping that maybe we could dive into a little bit of that and talk a little bit. Certainly I know there's these schools of thought, you know, Turing theory, germ theory, and, uh, you know, I typically think that it's never binary, you know, there's usually uh, nuances to things and that's typically difficult for people. They don't like living in the shades of gray. So hopefully <laughs> you can help us out. Definitely. Yeah. So if people are, we'll start with like, if someone doesn't know what terrain theory or germ theory is, what that means. So Basically, they're called theories because we don't know if one or the other is actually true because health and germs are very tricky. They're very hard to find. They're very wishy-washy. They're not a black and white science. It's kind of like psychology versus mathematics. Like We try to make health in our body like math or like engineering, and it just doesn't work that way. Like one plus one is not equal to two always in our body. And there can be an infinite causes of any disease or pathology that happens. And sometimes you can biopsy the same disease process 10 times and find 10 different results. Or you can MRI a shoulder five times before you find the torn rotator cuff. So it seems like you should have a torn rotator cuff or a torn muscle. You should be able to find it. 
but sometimes you have to do an MRI two, three, five times before he actually comes up. And that doesn't make sense to a lot of people because we're often taught this mechanistic mathematic physics kind of equations um, when we grow up, but our body doesn't always work that way. And um, it seems like we should be able to figure it out, but a lot of these germs or the things that we're trying to detect in cellular activity are so small that we can't see them with the human eye. So we have to use microscopes. We have to take samples of tissue and hope that that's accurate and a representative of the rest of the body or the rest of that tissue area. So it becomes very tricky. We make a lot of assumptions that we wouldn't normally want to be making. And a lot of modern medicine is based off of a lot of presumptions or theories that most medical doctors have assumed to be true. And they sort of say, well, if this is true, then this is how we're going to do all of medicine and treat all of medicine and infectious disease. But there's still a lot of that we really have to be humble about to say we really don't know a lot more than back when we were putting leeches on people and bleeding people and doing all those things, which speaking in terms of Chinese medicine, bleeding people can actually be very therapeutic. So like there are things that are shunned in old school medicine that save lives. Um, one of those things being cranial osteopathic manipulation. So like we tried talked about in the last podcast, but my life was saved by a chiropractor who does cranial manipulation, which a lot of DO osteopathic doctors still do, especially the older ones. So that completely saved my life, reversed memory loss, reversed an IQ drop, reversed a post-concussion syndrome within an hour. So it's one of those things where like the doctors used to do that, it used to be very therapeutic. And we just went by the wayside, just kind of like lost it. And um, one of those old things that we've lost is this kind of an old classic debate before the early 1900s in terrain theory versus germ theory. Yeah. And the terrain theory says that your terrain, your state of health, and what that terrain looks like is what determines whether or not you get sick or whether or not you have a disease. Versus the germ theory says that you get sick from germs. And that's the primary cause of almost all diseases from some sort of bacteria, virus, parasite, or spirochete, which is like Lyme disease, or a prion disease, which is like mad cow disease. So the theory is that it doesn't matter in germ theory, it doesn't really matter how healthy you are or not, if you're exposed to, if you have like an open wound and you're exposed to a virus or to chlamydia or to Lyme disease, then you're going to get Lyme disease. If you get bit by a mosquito with malaria, then you're for sure gonna get malaria, you're for sure gonna get Zika virus, or you're for sure gonna get dengue or whatever the other germ is that's in that animal that's trying to infect you and you basically don't have any defenses whereas the terrain theory says that it's really not the germ that makes you sick it's really your terrain that allows for germs to invade or break through your barrier defenses and allow you to become sick or the terrain theory is basically saying that um it never really was the germ that's making you sick, but the germ is actually playing a different type of role in sometimes helping your body to build its ecosystem, build its immune system, and that germs are not always bad for us. And that's a subcategory of terrain theory where some terrain theory people say that um, germs are actually good for us and they might kill us, but if we survive, it's good for us. Kind of like the theory of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. So some terrain theory people believe that. Most medical practitioners believe some combination of the terrain theory and the germ theory. They believe that 
germs of various types can make you sick. And they also believe that your terrain, your overall state of health makes a huge difference in whether or not you do get sick. So if you have cancer and you're really old and you're on your deathbed and you don't have vitamin D in the healthy range and you're not getting any exercise, you're much more susceptible to say pneumonia or the flu in terms of that might end your life or might be a lot harder for you to recover. Whereas a child who has a healthier terrain, they eat better, maybe they're getting more exercise and sunlight, they're getting um, you know, exposed to germs all around them all the time, they have a healthier terrain, then those germs, they might be exposed to you, they might incorporate them into their body without getting sick, or they just might not break through their defenses and make them sick in the first place. Right. So then there's a school of thought where people are saying that, you know, it's not a germ at all, that it's, uh, you know, toxins and it's uh, radiation. And, and I, I've certainly heard people have put forth this, the, this school of thought that every pandemic has been a combination of a toxin and radiation. Can you speak yes. a little on that? <laughs> yeah. So if you look historically, a lot of pandemics have happened during major industrial revolutions or changes in new radioactive technology. So whether it's like telephone lines or the first radio wave, like radio wave, um, actual like AM, FM radio type things, or whether it's television lines or the first cell phones or now with like 5G, 5G towers that everyone's talking about. Um, a lot of different pandemics happened when there were major new exposures to electromagnetic frequencies, EMFs, or other sorts of like pollution or toxins. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people believe that those toxic exposures can either when you are exposed, you can get sick. And then we sometimes mistake a germ as causing those toxic illnesses, mm -hmm. or that those toxic exposures can build up in your system sort of like a bucket, they fill up the bucket. And then once you've had so much, or once there's some kind of stimulus to start the basically like bucket dumping process, mm -hmm. then those toxins spill out, the cellular debris spills out, and you get, quote, unquote, sick with an infectious type of illness. And um, there is definitely a good deal of truth to that. Mm -hmm. um, so a, I think a lot of people in the, that's more of what we would call like the terrain theory camp. That's the subcategory that says that germs don't really cause illness. They're more like the downstream effect of illness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the terrain theory people I talked to in that camp believe that certain STDs, certain bacteria, certain, you know, Lyme disease and spirochetes and prion diseases can still be germs that cause disease in the germ theory, but they're not so certain about viruses. Right. And that's really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and where it gets a little thick or like hard from a teaching standpoint. So viruses exist in many different states. There's like standard viruses. There's something called a bacteriophage, which is basically something that's like a virus that infects bacteria to kind of control bacterial growth, which is what happens in the ocean. Um, a bunch of bacteria are killed by these viruses called bacteriophages that basically stop the bacteria from overgrowing. And because of that bacteria death from the virus bacteriophages, we have oxygen from the ocean and that's actually more oxygen than there are um, oxygen from trees. So if we didn't have those viruses in the ocean to kill the bacteria, then we wouldn't really be able to breathe right now and talk to each other. 
So some viruses keep us alive in that way. There's also something called macro or megaviruses, which basically we can see much more easily under a microscope. Um, so there's a lot of different forms of viruses. There's different like retroviruses that, um, and there's a whole slew of like subsets of viruses as far as what modern virology and immunologists classify them as. But a lot of people believe that viruses are not truly infectious or they are not a germ that is causative of disease. And that's really where um, there's a split right now in some of the health freedom community and a lot of other communities is because we do not have great proof that viruses by themselves cause disease. We do have decent proof, which is where most medical doctors are at, that when someone is going through this disease infectious process, that people can test positive or excrete things that they can test for, different genes or genetic sequences or genetic material that has genetic sequencing that they can test for and say, look, there's some sort of um, sequence or pattern here that we are gonna label as this virus or this variant or and then we kind of make the assumption or the leap of faith that those um, excretions that we find when people are going through the infectious process are the germ that is causing the contagiousness. And that truly has never been like fully proven. Right. Um, it has been shown to be fairly true for bacteria and Lyme disease and other infections, but not necessarily for viruses. So we're not fully sure if the virus excretion is what is causing infection or not. Um, so there is a theory called the exosome theory, which is based where viruses are excretions of sick dying cells. And most of the time when we study viral infections, what we do is we basically inject a cell with toxic material or carcinogens that would normally kill the cell. And then we find the viruses being excreted from that dead dying cell. So a lot of people will take that to mean that that cell is only excreting the virus because it is sick and dying. And therefore, people who have a healthy terrain and a healthy body would never excrete viruses because they're so healthy that there's no way they would be having sick dying cells that would um, excrete a virus that then we could pick up and say that's causing their illness. However, we have millions and billions of new cells every day. So we're constantly going through a cellular death dying process. So it is possible that even people who are super healthy or optimally healthy could still have a detectable viral type of infection, if you want to call it that, when they're going through this kind of like exosome process or basically a detoxification process. So their belief system in that camp is that people are excreting these viruses is what's called an exosome just basically like a toxic cellular debris or waste and that people go through periods of time, often in groups where they're basically detoxing together, whether it's heavy metals, EMFs, um, pesticides, other pollution, um, like all the other chemicals, the thousands of chemicals that are released every year in our environment that are on furniture, on our clothes, that we're breathing in, that's off gassing off of all kinds of things, different perfumes and you know makeups and things like that. Um, they believe that there's very, the more toxic you are, the more you either need to get sick in order to purge and release all these toxins through your cells, which the virus material is going to get excreted when that happens. 
Um, and the more sick you are, the more often or the more intense this is, and the more healthy you are, the less often you get sick. Fascinating. So I'm curious about what, you know, what's happening right now um, and how, how that falls into these different uh, theories and camps and what, what could possibly be at play. Yeah, so I guess as far as the, what, there's a lot of books that talk about this. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Dr. Kaufman, Dr. Cowan talk about this a lot. Um, Dr. Stefan Lenka talks about it a lot. Alex Zek, who's the founder of Health Freedom for Humanity, talks about it a lot. Um, there's a page undercover viral virologist who's talking about it quite a bit. And um, I think everything that they say is accurate. However, there's some things, um, and these are all the terrain theory type of people. Yeah. There are some things that they're, I believe, maybe ignoring or not explaining to make sense of the big picture. Okay. So my perspective is one that my belief system kind of includes the truth of the train theory and the germ theory. Mm -hmm. So kind of the best way to go about explaining this. So I would say that what the train theorists in that camp are not fully explaining is the genetic sequencing. They're not explaining why people will test positive to antibody testing, PCR or rapid antigen testing, mm -hmm. um, why they'll be negative and then why they test positive when they're sick. Mm -hmm. So sometimes these are explained, but often they're ignored or kind of downplayed. So the yeah. people in this camp will sort of say, well, the PCR tests are junk and worthless or the antigen tests are bogus or the genetic sequencing is just a fake illusion of a computer modeling system that just takes the genetic sequences. Um, rearrange them to make whatever proteins they want and then create this like mythical fake virus that's never truly been seen. And that might be true, but I think we, what we do need is we need some of these terrain theorists in that camp to have a healthy debate with a person who specializes in genetic sequencing or these yeah. modeling. I'd Pretty love much. to see that. <laughs> I've never really seen like both sides. Yeah. Go. And I think the train theorists tend to ignore a lot of this like modern technology and mm -hmm. testing and what it means like if someone is testing positive or they if they are finding these sequences on a PCR test that's properly cycled, or if you are finding someone who's negative, negative through antigen testing, they're maybe testing their kids every day for school and then all of a sudden they get sick and they test positive. It's like, what does that mean? It mm -hmm. means at the very least that when someone is sick, they're excreting this virus material. That material in conventional mainstream medicine is what makes someone sick. Um, but to the trained theorists, they're like, that's just an excretion. It's something else. It's kind of like just a finding of a, you know, dead, dying cell debris. And it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and I think the truth lies in between. Mm -hmm. So the analogy that I have for people to kind of maybe make sense of this. Yeah. Um, is one of the viruses a burglar. Um, let me write down something because I want to cover this after this. So what my thought is that the virus is basically like what we're calling the virus, what we're finding in the genetic sequencing, what we're finding in the PCR antigen testing is like the corpse of a burglar trying to break into your house, your health house. Mm -hmm. And the, if you had just the body, it would just be flat on the ground and nothing would be happening. There'd be like no pumping heart. There'd be no consciousness. There'd be no tools to break in and they couldn't, even like get up any motivation to stand up and break into your house. So I think in order to break into your house, 
they have to have some sort of energy or consciousness or motivation or intention. So I do think there is a level of, this gets a little more woo-woo per se, but I do think there is a level of either thought or energy or frequency or some sort of like energetic resonance that is required for a viral material or viral excretion or whatever is happening. Even if you exclude the virus, there has to be some sort of resonant frequency where people give off a contagion or get someone else sick. It's kind of like women's periods syncing up. It's kind of like trees can communicate with different pheromones and hormones. We do that with each other in terms of cellular signaling, but we also do in terms of like an energetic signaling as well, where a human and their dog will be in the same room and their hearts start to beat in rhythm with each other. Yeah. So in the same way, when someone's sick, you can also energetically kind of resonate or sync up with them as well. So there's an element of that that's maybe like the consciousness or the energy of the burglar that like gets them up, gets his heart pumping. And then they also need certain tools to get in. So the virus by itself, the corpse might not be able to do it, but you might need the corpse, you might need the energy. You also might need some tools, which would be like inflammatory parts of saliva or blood or some other body fluid. So there might be other chemical components in the you know, nasal excretions or a sneeze or a cough or a bodily fluid or just like the dust or the air that is required for that burglar to break into your house. Right. And the other thing is your house has to have some sort of doorway to get in. It could just be like completely brick and there's no way in whatsoever unless they like get a huge, um, you know, destruction, some sort of like break down the door um, type of device to just demolish your house. But most viruses in general, if we talk about them like they're people, they don't want to destroy the house. They just want to come in, make themselves at home and incorporate themselves into you. They want to like make more of themselves inside your house, reproduce and then leave. Um, and there's bits of them that stay in your house, like the memory of them stays in your house forever. So if you're unhealthy, then there's more doors or windows. Maybe you didn't lock your door. Maybe the window is like wide open because you didn't sleep the night before. Or you had a bunch of tequila shots. So you have a lot more like easy access entryways to getting sick. And the train theorists would say, well, that's because your terrain is really poor or you're unhealthy or you're toxic. So it's like the more toxins, the more lack of health, the more um, opportunities that burglar has to break into your house. Right. That's, so yeah. for me, the burglar itself is not necessarily what causes contagiousness or infection, but it is something that we find after the disease process happens um, that does tell us that someone is going through one sort of illness versus another. So when we find um, a test for hepatitis, we know that that disease that that person is going through might not have been caused by hepatitis, but it's going to look a certain way in terms of like a medical disease story. When someone has a really bad case of you know, COVID-19 and they detect SARS-CoV-2 as the virus, whether that caused it or not, they're, if they get bad enough, they're gonna find that their lungs get really swollen and there's leaky blood vessels and capillaries in their lungs. So they're gonna fill up with more fluid and get a pneumonia called like COVID pneumonia, which is different than a lot of other pneumonias. And they're often gonna get brain swelling as well. Um, and they're gonna lose smell and taste. There's like certain things that it will you know, patterns of diagnosis that would say this is more like a COVID-19 case than a flu or a common cold. Because there are a lot of minor cases where someone's excreting SARS-CoV-2 and it does look like a cold or a flu. And the hard, tricky part with this is it's such a spectrum of um, what those disease states look like that 
it's only in the severe cases that we can really say, oh, this is starting to look like something different than the cold or the flu. And the other important point to note is that we're never really sick with one germ. We can sometimes test that we could test like every germ in your body. An infectious disease specialist could look for like thousands of different germs that are in your body or coming out of your body, or you're maybe making antibodies against those germs. And you could maybe have 20 or 30 when you're sick that are positive. And every time you're sick, a lot of the viruses, those antibody titers go up when you're sick. So if you have Epstein-Barr virus that causes the disease mono, or you could also reframe that and say you have Epstein, you have mono and then you detect Epstein-Barr virus because it's maybe it's not coming from Epstein-Barr virus. You could say every time you're not sleeping, every time you drink too much alcohol, or you're really stressed out or your immune system is run down, those titers go up. And when you get a cold or the flu or any type of infection or you know infectious process or detoxification process, those titers will also go up. So a lot of these germs or viruses, they're your antibody levels or basically your body trying to fight or clear them out of your system or help the detoxification process, whatever you want to call it, that all heightens when you have an infectious process. And sometimes you can do PCR testing to say there's a lot more excretion of SARS-CoV-2 type of genetic sequences or gene proteins, DNA, RNA proteins, than there are mono, but there's still a lot of flu. There might be some common cold as well. So you can all, depending on how um, many cycle thresholds or how much like you amplify the excretions of a sick person, you can often find dozens and dozens of dozens of different microbes or germs that are elevated at that time. So it's often not just one burglar that's breaking in. There's often like burglars inside your house that maybe break the window to let them in, or they they have a whole team of burglars in a truck that's coming to break into your house. And there's not just one because we're really living in this um, huge biodiversity ecosystem where we we're exposed to millions and billions of germs and viruses and all sorts of things on a daily basis. And our body's constantly deciding what to let in and out what we incorporate into our body or not, because viruses actually make up 9% of our DNA, or 9% of our DNA is identified as viral, and over half of our DNA has been modified by viruses. So even if we say that viruses cause disease, most viruses are good for us, because we, if they weren't, we would be dead. So a lot of people never ask the question of like, why would viruses exist in nature? Well, they have to be there for a reason or to somehow, maybe they're like worthless, like an appendix, which we later learned was not actually worthless mm -hmm. because generally nature doesn't make worthless things. Even if it's just like dead space or even if it's just like hanging out, not doing anything like a rock, there's still a purpose for a rock to build a mountain, right? Yep. You may not realize the rock was a mountain, but a lot of people who are looking at these viruses saying like, what's the, the positive aspect of this thing? are saying that viruses actually help our DNA to upgrade, grow, evolve, and change, much like an iPhone software update, where you have an update that basically happens either yearly or every couple months, and the virus is basically like the program that you need to update to and you need to upgrade. And some people are not healthy enough to make the upgrade. Maybe they are a really old person or a really old phone, and so they can't handle the new update, so their system crashes. Or maybe they've been dropped, they look healthy, they're super pretty, but they've been dropped in the toilet five times and they just were like cleaned off, dried off with a blow fan and put a new case on. And so they look great. Or they've been dropped and their screen cracked a whole bunch of times so they don't really work very well and they're a little slowed down and they get the system upgrade and they don't make it. 
So there's a lot of like internal things in people's immune systems or their bodies that could make them not able to handle a viral upgrade. But what viruses really do is upgrade our DNA, which is like our software, to basically adapt to the modern ecosystem, whether that's including pesticides or toxins, because Wuhan, China was one of the most heavily pesticided places in the world and one of the first places that had um, Cinco G, 5G technology. So whether it's adapting to the EMFs or the toxins, I truly believe that viruses are actually good for us. And it's maybe not what's getting us sick, but it is what's helping our bodies to adapt to the ecosystem that we're surrounded by. Amazing. Amazing. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about titers. This is just really fascinating to me personally. Um, I think most of the audience, I don't know how familiar you are with my personal story, but when you talk about Dr. Lenka, um, so this whole like terrain versus germ theory uh, was actually a really hard pill for me personally to swallow uh, because a lot of it was based on Lenka's, uh, you know, Supreme Court ruling in Germany, uh, ruling that German measles didn't exist. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a stubborn person, but I'm also, you know, if you show me enough evidence, I will certainly look at it. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I was definitely resistant, but um, it is very intriguing to me because then what exactly happened to me, right? So my, uh, they did test the titer and I, it was considered a wrongful birth because the doctor was dyslexic. He read the titer as being 112 when the titer was in fact 121, meaning I was affected. Uh, but he read it as 112, meaning I wasn't affected. And my parents did sue, it was called a wrongful birth case because otherwise they would have recommended um, an abortion. I'm very grateful that he made a mistake. I'm very grateful that, you know, I, I'm happy to be here. I hope others are happy to have me here, but, um, <laughs> so I, but it still raises a lot of questions for me. So how does these titers work? And yeah, and then how would uh, something like that I guess the environment is different, you know, when you're, yeah. Um, well, do you want to give a quick, if people are new, do you want to like give the quick um, story of your mother's pregnancy and birth and how yeah, that Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, the, the, the quick version is uh, basically my mom's doctor, the OBGYN, was very good friends with my father. They socialized together. Um, the wife of the doctor, had been traveling and contracted, at least this is this is the story, uh, yep. contracted German measles. And my father was very, very sick for a, a long period of time, like a week. He had a fever of 104, was delirious. Um, my mom had very mild symptoms. She had a rash on her upper chest and she was pretty sure she went, you know, she knew she was pregnant. So she's doing all sorts of research and, you know, she was pretty sure that she had contracted German measles from my father even though her symptoms were much more mild and very different. So she went and had the titer tested uh, to determine whether or not I, the baby being me, uh, was affected with the uh, German measles. And the, so you heard that part, they read it as being 112, it was really 121. Um, when I was born, the, the hospital knew the doctor was dyslexic, so they were actually covering up for him. Um, and they did not, you know, my mom noticed that there were a bunch of things that didn't seem right. And they kept saying everything was fine. Everything was fine. You know, things like I'm blind in one eye. I had one eye that was rolling up in the top of my head. And they kept saying, baby's eyes don't focus. And she said, well, why does the other one focus? You know, that doesn't make sense. Um, so I was rendered with a whole bunch of complications, such as bilateral hearing impairment. I do wear hearing aids, but I learned how to speak by reading lips. 
Uh, I had a cataract on my left eye when I was first born. So I'm, I have unilateral blindness. I had patent ductus arteriosus. So I had heart surgery when I was one years old. Uh, fine graphic motor impairment, asymmetrical bone development, stunted growth, hypotonic limbs. So lots of complications and challenges, but I am very fortunate to be here and I fared you know, much better than they expected because they told my mom that the best she could hope was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life, which fortunately she didn't agree. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so basically, um, if we were gonna, this is where it gets really important where I wanted to talk about gaslighting because <laughs> a lot of, um, a lot of people who are having bad reactions to this disease process, you know, SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID-19 are getting told that like a lot of people are saying like, well, it's not that bad or most people are fine. So like, it's not a big deal or they're having long COVID like 20 to 33% of people who have COVID-19 will get long COVID, which mm -hmm. causes, you know, tiredness or other a whole slew of problems for months, sometimes years afterwards. Yeah. So a lot of those people are basically told by the medical community even, or the people in the train theory camp that it's all in their head or that they need to detox more or that it's something else. It's not their immune system. It's something else. Um, so they can basically gaslight, which is where like their version of reality gets denied and said that like what they're experiencing is not true. And that's really like a form of mental, emotional abuse in a way. Yep. And it's I've experienced a, fine... a bit of it actually this past few years. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's like a fine line between telling someone like your version of reality is wrong, but also trying to say, well, your version of reality is true, but maybe it's slightly different than how you think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Which is also, yeah. Which can be happened to, um, with people who are getting the jabs or the V's or the boosters and things, um, mm -hmm. people who have adverse reactions to those are often getting gaslighted by medical community or by standard population people. Or they'll say like, I had this horrible reaction right afterwards and I nearly died or I got a clot or like I had this weird bleeding thing that happened or I went to go to the hospital for pericarditis or myocarditis. And a lot of times those people get gaslighted as well where they're told like that couldn't possibly be true. That's not like that wouldn't cause that, or that's just like a coincidence or a correlation doesn't mean causation. It's just like, so there's a lot of um, denying of people suffering, which tends to happen during great times of suffering or pandemics or world wars, where there's a lot of global suffering. And a lot of people are suffering so hard in their own lives that they can't really acknowledge one more person suffering in a way that they're not familiar with, because that would mean that maybe a lot of these jabs or boosters are actually causing more damage to everybody who's taking it on some small degree and that's too much suffering from their knowledge or on the other side maybe like acknowledging the fact that the germ is causing a lot of suffering for people or a lot of problems for people or that whatever is happening with COVID-19 whatever is causing it um, that that's really hard for people is also too much suffering for people to acknowledge so you get a lot of people who are kind of like germ theory or COVID-19 deniers saying there is no pandemic no one's suffering it's all just like a relabeling of cold or flu or something else, which is kind of eerily close to gaslighting all the people who are getting it. And then there's also the people who are gaslighting the people reacting negatively to all of the boosters and jabs and shots that are being pushed everywhere. Cool. So it is this kind of tricky balance. Um, as far as for you, mm -hmm. if someone were to tell you like, you know, the German measles or rubella that your mother was infected with didn't happen. That, 
that was fake or it was all in her head or whatever it was, that would also kind of like. I've had people tell me that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that would like change your entire story of like who you are, what you are, your entire childhood, and your entire story would just like crumble to shreds in a way, which would be. It awful. was very traumatic for me. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I've I met with lots of resistance, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think what you, maybe the middle ground, I think of what they, if they were a little more diplomatic, what they would try to say is perhaps German measles, well, the, the titers are real, but what they would, I believe, but what they would say the titers would mean if they were to even acknowledge that titers were thing, which some of them don't, which I think is not really accurate because they're obviously, they go up and down. That does mean something medically, clinically to people who practice medicine in that way. So I think what it, they would might say is that like, well, your dad or your mom or the people who were sick before them were going through some sort of detoxification reaction from maybe they had all eaten the same food from the same town, or maybe they had gone through some new wireless technology or something, but they were all going through this like detoxification process at the same time, or like one person started it, passed it on to someone else, and another person goes through this resonating kind of like detoxification reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you're detoxing really hard, you're going to be, or a lot, you're going to be excreting more of this viral material and your titers will go up. So they would say, if you're like very sick, or if your body's really reacting, trying to make antibodies to support this detoxification process, then your titers will be super high. And if that's really high and you're detoxifying this really hard, that's gonna be really hard on the fetuses or the baby's system. So that's gonna really affect them and cause a lot of the issues you had. Whereas if it's below 120 or if it's 112 or below, then you know your baby's not gonna be affected enough in terms of like having issues later on. So I think that's maybe where the middle ground is. Sure. But I know Stefan Lenker and all these other people saying like it doesn't exist. I think they're getting very nitpicky, which is kind of important from a philosophical and a virology standpoint about what is an existence of a virus. Right. So a lot of the train theorists will say a virus does not exist unless you can visualize it under a microscope, not from a, not excreting out of a toxic cell culture, but you can like take it from someone who's sick and find it, purify it, isolate it, and then identify it as like this unique thing. This is conscious theory, correct? The Koch principle? Um, similar to, yeah, Cox postulates. Yeah, Cox postulates. More Cox postulates, which was used for like bacteriology and basically is no longer used because a lot of modern day germs are no longer considered to satisfy Cox postulates, um, which is K-O-C-H for people, not like C-O-C-K. So Cox postulates <laughs> are kind of like Koch postulates are basically like a way to determine if a germ exists that's no longer used, but a lot of the trained theorists will say it doesn't satisfy the old definition of an existence of a germ via the old Cox postulates, so it's not existing. Where modern virologists don't use Cox postulates anymore, they basically use um, either PCR testing or the genetic sequencing to say that this is something uniquely um, different than other germs or other viruses or other infectious causal material. So at the fundamental difference of whether or not SARS-CoV-2 is real, we have a problem with just almost like semantics of what it is to be a virus, yeah. which is part of the whole problem. Yeah. And I think it's really, that's what's really coming to the surface for a lot of people. 
you know, maybe not in the mainstream, but a lot of people who are really trying to uncover what's going on. And, you know, I think part of the problem is that we have been as a society, you talk about gaslighting, right? We have been gaslit, we've been lied to so ubiquitously about so much that I think people really lack the ability to discern fact from fiction because it, everything just seems to be, it's, it's, it's a mess to navigate through. So I think at this point where we're seeing that this is starting to raise a lot of questions for people who may have you know, been super uh, mainstream and uh, you know, would have never questioned this two years ago. And a lot of them are starting to see, well, this particular virus doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Something's up, <laughs> at least with the main narrative. And that starts to uncover, well, we see patterns at the very least, like we said in, you know, in the beginning of this conversation about you know, other pandemics and uh, the circumstances around them. Um, and then also the circumstances after them, right? There were a lot of, usually it was a pandemic and then a world war or a revolution or, uh, you know, which we're certainly seeing the potential for now. <laughs> So there's a lot of coincidences, apparently, and if uh, you're not a big believer in coincidences, it's it's a lot to ponder. So, yeah, yeah, I think we do go through these like different 80 year cycles. I don't know if you ever seen the video that talks about how we go through like four 20 year phases. I don't think I saw that one. No, you look at it right now. It's basically saying like we go through 80 year time periods and they call it like turning of the centuries in a way. Um, I believe it's the Strauss Howe generation, but um, it basically saying like from 1940 till now, we've like gone through this other turning. Um, it's a video by Van Neistat. If you know Casey Neistat, I think it might be his brother, but it's basically a fourth, they call like the, there's a YouTube video called, we are in a fourth turning. What does that mean? With like over a million views. And it basically talks about how we go from like- There's a book, The Fourth Turning. Yep, it could be from that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it basically like we go through like this high phase in the first 20 years to an awakening phase to an unraveling phase where things start getting worse into a crisis phase. And we're basically like in the midst of the crisis phase and things are about to get really bad before they then get better again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, uh, communist uh, theorists and, you know, Yuri Benzmanov talked about this, right? That, that after the crisis, it becomes the, uh, the new normal. And that's the normalization phase. So, and that does seem to be what they're trying to bring about. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, right. uh, at least the, the, the terminology. <laughs> I feel like it. the only way out of that is just to like go back towards um, being as normal as possible with like, and getting as many people to live the life that you want to live. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you, you posted that recently and I love that. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'd love to talk about some, you know, some of the positive ways we can, but before we get to that, the last time we talked, you had talked a little bit about doing some work with your own patients on the pre and post jab. And uh, I'm curious at this stage, there's been quite some time. Uh, what are some of the things that you've found? And uh, is there any, I, I guess, hope in what you found? Because my hope, I, I, just to share where I'm coming from, is that, you know, the biggest crime, I think, in suppressing all this information is that we can't discover solutions if we're not investigating and addressing 
the problems, right? And if we can't identify the problem, there's no way to get to a solution other than happenstance, which isn't that likely. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there were some very, I guess, hopeful things we found in our research of the pre and post jab blood work. Um, one is that a lot of the, there was, for people who don't know, we were finding heart inflammation, heart stress, and just general really high inflammatory markers in people after their jab. We found it in every adult to some degree. And in over 80% of adults, we found it in like a quite high degree. The good news was it only lasted for a few weeks up to like a month or two max. So a lot of those blood changes were temporary or transient. Um, we are also finding something called HEMA in over 80% of people's urine. So like they were peeing out this HEMA toxin, which is a breakdown product of ethylene oxide or other toxins, but that was also happening for a couple months and then stopping. So right. HEMA is a breakdown of ethylene oxide, which is basically a really strong carcinogen, which means that people were likely getting injected with something that is carcinogenic. And the good news is the body was excreting it in its normal excretion process and it was clearing it fairly quickly. The bad news is we don't know how much that could actually cause a problem if it's not excreted appropriately or fast enough or um, how much of it there actually is in the jabs um, to really cause a problem. We haven't studied that enough to really have like a acceptable rate of ethylene oxide or HEMA in our bodies. All we know is just, just that excreting it is a sign that like we're putting something toxic in our bodies or we're exposing ourselves to something toxic. So those weren't great. The good news is people were recovering from it. And um, other doctors have been basically verifying our same research. There's a really important research by Stephen Gundry, who had an abstract 10712 called observational findings of PULS cardiac test findings for inflammatory markers in patients receiving mRNA back the B word. Um, so he was basically finding in a whole different set of cardiac testing that people were having a very high inflammatory change in their heart markers. And that, that would likely last, it would like increase their risk of the next like two to five years, not drastically, but somewhat. So we're kind of finding good news of that. It's like he was that a lot of this lasts for just a couple months. Um, but it could cause a slightly higher risk for all types of different cardiovascular risk for a couple years afterwards, which is not great news, but that is kind of like where the research is currently at at the moment. Okay. Are you familiar with um, Dr. Andreas Nowak? Um, I've heard of him, but I don't okay. know. He you know talk about he he was saying that there was uh he was talking about uh graphene hydroxide and the effects of that um he died shortly after a big speech he did about that um which is interesting um yeah. very sad <laughs> um but he talked about how it, that would make sense that there would be he said that essentially graphene hydroxide was like razor blades in a cell um, and he said that it would make a lot of sense why uh, it's affecting athletes that much more because the faster the blood runs, uh, the more, uh, you know, 
of a blade it acts as. So more risks of clots and strokes and that sort of thing. Um, and I have seen, there are a couple, I actually interviewed uh, one of them, Dr. Robert Young, who uh, talked about uh, his findings in you know the injections and found graphene oxide in them. He says that they reduce to hydroxide, um, that they don't start that way, but that, that that was basically how he explained it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, if that's something you have any familiarity with or. I don't have a lot of familiar with it. Um, I would love to see the one with Robert Young and Noack though. Um, but I have heard about the graphene oxide. I Are you saying that Robert Young was saying it's like not as bad because it, it breaks down into hydroxide? Yeah. Okay. That's so, essentially what he alluded to in uh, our discussion. Yeah. Um, and his research is, uh, yeah, it was quite extensive. I, I'll send you the document. Yeah. Great, great. Um, what I had seen a couple months ago was that um, I hadn't seen enough people who had found the graphene oxide in the jabs yet. Mm -hmm. um, not to say it isn't happening, right. because it's hard to look for in the first place, but there was a doctor I trusted who had like a lab that was speaking out against a lot of this stuff, which, and he was saying he could not find them. So I was like, well, I have doctors saying they can, they can't. Generally in science, you look for stuff that's like repeatable that everyone's finding. Right. The question really like who has the technology to find these things and are they able to find them repeatably or not? And then and I, then, oh, sorry, go and on. If the, and if the pharmaceutical companies know that it's been found, are they going to keep putting it in there? Are they going to start taking it out? Which is another tricky part. Or will different, you know, manufacturing centers be including this or is it only going to be certain subsets that might have that in there as well, which makes it very tricky. That, that, that's what I was going to uh, suggest. I think that there, I mean, they've already shown that, uh, you know, the M1 has different batches and the uh, effects of them are significantly different. Uh, some people are having much more significant adverse reaction to the certain batch versus other. Um, so there does seem to be differences, <laughs> which again, makes it very tricky for re replication of testing. Um, and I, I know I've heard scientists, uh, you know, researchers and doctors say, you know, on both sides, you know, ones who are really against that argument and that theory, and they say they can't find it, that they don't believe it at all, um, you know, and then I've uh, obviously others that there's, you know, I, the, the one I've spoken to is Dr. Young, but I've seen research from some others as well. Um, who are indicating that. So I feel like, I, I guess the next question would be to be somewhat hopeful. Would there be any possibility of a uh, detoxing, what we were talking earlier about, you know, how illness sometimes is the process of detox. And so detox is not a bad thing. Our bodies are designed to do that. So um, is there potential for detoxing from that and from some of the other not so great things that might be in there? <laughs> yeah, I think the detoxing, you're right. Like our body does do it all the time. Every sweat, every pee, every breath, every poop is a detox type reaction. Yeah. So even just by staying alive, you're going to be detoxing some of this stuff um, as well. There's different debate on what the best way to detox this is. Some people say it's clinoptinolite or zeolites, which is like TRS spray, or I like GI absorbed by standard process. Some people think there's like different baths, but different things people put in it, which yeah. we've had some people, yeah, 
poor acts and things like that. And people have had negative reactions. Some of my patients have had negative reactions to that, so I don't really recommend that at this point. Um, but some people swear by the borax baths. Some people swear by like different teas or other tinctures or herbs to help detox. Um, dandelion is one of them, but mm -hmm. there's really a lot of different beliefs about the detox support. And acetylcysteine, I think, is probably the best scientific kind of like detox vitamin we have. Um, so N-acetylcysteine and or glutathione are shown to help our body excrete all like thousands of different types of toxins. So I feel like that's probably what I would trend towards is using that or some of the clinoptinolite and G-absorb or other things like that to help our bodies detox it. But if you wanted to help speed that process up, but I personally don't like taking supplements. So I would rather like hop in a sauna, do more exercise, drink mm -hmm. more water, make sure I'm being clear most of the time, unless I'm taking B vitamins, make sure I'm pooping regularly and it looks good and it's like easy to come out. So I would much prefer doing that and letting my body kind of do it the way it's innately intelligently made to do it. than say like my body's weak and needs help kind of detoxing this stuff. But um, I'm also not opposed to like taking some of the things that might help in a way that my body couldn't do on its own. And the real truth, I think, is that we don't truly know if our bodies are able to get rid of this on its own or not. I know we're able to get rid of some of the ethylene oxide, but if there's graphene oxide, I'm not quite sure if we have the research yet to say like fully how to get rid of that. I think I did see one article suggesting the N-acetylcysteine, but I haven't seen a lot of other ones yet. Right. Are you aware of any ones um, that might help us with that, if that's in there? To, to detox from that specifically? Uh, no, I have heard people talk about like things that are traditional metal detoxes that might help. And, you know, the TRS that you mentioned, the borax baths, some people, I, I think that's a more theoretical at this stage than it is proven. Um, but there, I have also heard people, and this is just purely anecdotal, um, but talk about things like hyperbaring uh, chambers and, uh, you know, oxygen therapy. Um, I, I've heard people just anecdotally say that they had beneficial results with it, people who had adverse reactions. I, I've heard them say that was helpful for them, but. That would make sense. We actually used to have a hyperbaric oxygen tank here at our office and we got rid of it because we had to hire another doctor because it got too busy, but it was really helpful for after jab reactions or after infectious reactions as well. Mm -hmm. um, just for like the nervous system in general and the body that's super healing helps with infectious processes, helps with immune processes, helps with just like healing and repair from trauma or injury. So that I've heard stories of that as well. And we've had some patients do that with good success. Okay. Well, that, that's good to know that more people are having positive reactions with that, regardless of, I do think there's something to be said for anecdotal um, <laughs> evidence. Yeah. And I, I think that should be talked about, especially early in the game, because we don't have, we don't always have access to clinical studies it's super early in the game. You know, that's right. not really possible. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I also would love you to talk Plus it'll take like a year or two for it to be peer reviewed. And then you need to get more studies for it to be like a meta-analysis. And then it's all about which studies you include in your meta-analysis. So a lot of that is very tricky. Yeah, right. And uh, peer review itself is probably a whole nother conversation we could uh, <laughs> spend quite some time on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and you can talk to that process briefly, but I'd like you to address actually the supplements because I think a lot of people right now are rushing out to take 
you know, a whole bunch of supplements and they're starting to ban a lot of supplements or make it much more difficult to gain access to these supplements. Uh, but I think they're, you know, a lot of people don't do that well with supplements, especially if they are not, you know, able to handle them and uh, their detox pathways are not already primed. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Why, you know, you prefer not to take supplements. Why I prefer not to. Um, yeah. I prefer to just make my lifestyle so healthy that I don't need supplements. Okay. Sometimes I want to like optimize something or work on something, but I prefer to take supplements with an intention and not for the rest of my life is right. basically. So if I want vitamin D, I want to get it in fish or beef liver or cow, you know, some other form of liver, or I want to get it from the sun. Um, if I need vitamin C, I'm going to get it from fruits, not ascorbic acid supplements or not like encapsulated fruit. I'm going to like eat a smoothie or drink some fruit juice or something like that. Even though the ascorbic acid part of fruit juice actually like leaves within an hour and oxidizes and isn't useful anymore. So you have to drink it pretty fast. But um, I prefer to just like get most of those things from food or from like eating organs that a lot of people don't want to eat. So I'm willing to like live a lifestyle that helps me get all the nutrients that I possibly can from a really healthy diet and lifestyle um, right. that doesn't require supplements in order to be healthy or feel good. But a lot of people don't feel good or they have a purpose or intention. They're trying to get over a disease state or trying to recover from something faster and taking herbs or supplements or high dose vitamins or food-based vitamins can really help someone heal a lot faster or um, help their body heal in a way that they couldn't really do on their own. Great. So there's different like CBD or there's actually cannabidiols in echinacea. Um, CBD is actually in a lot of things besides hemp, but it's um, there's a lot of just like herbs and healing compounds that can have really profound effects on the body that can be very healing. Some people will have detox reactions where they can't um, excrete things out their skin they're not pooping really well or not able to excrete things through their colon very well they're not able to pee or urinate well maybe they have a lot of urinary tract infections or they just have weak kidneys or they get kidney stones or bladder infections all the time or something like that or they um, aren't breathing well they're not really like exercising enough or they don't have a good abdominal belly breathing and they're more chest breathing and they're tight in their neck and they get anxious all the time so they're not really like fully excreting through their breath as much as they could be um, and some people have different infections in their lymphatic system, or if you don't want to believe in infections, you'd say they have toxic burden in their lymphatic system that they're not able to excrete or move out of their toxic lymphatic system at this time. Um, and so some people will go through what's called a Herxheimer or a detox reaction where they'll get symptoms when they are detoxing and they'll basically feel a little bit or a lot worse until they sort of open those drainage pathways in order to get things sort of draining and excreting out of their system. Um, so a lot of people react to supplements for that reason. They also can react to supplements because some people are just more sensitive than others. Some people just don't react to synthetic things well. They react to herbs well, or they only react to teas well. They don't react to alcohol tinctures well, or they really don't, they are interacted to like the vegetable capsule that a lot of things are in, or maybe they don't do well with folic acid, but they do well with methylfolate because of a genetic SNP or genetic um, change in their code. So there's there's such a complexity like what people react to. So I usually try to see, is it a certain category of like herb, high dose vitamin, synthetic vitamin, natural vitamin food? Are they reacting to gluten or a filler or the capsule? Or maybe they just have um, a belief system too that's not good with 
pills that maybe they believe that pills are toxic or supplements are toxic. And no matter how healing they are, if they truly believe it, like this thing is bad for them, then it might never be good for them because they're just going to give themselves such a nocebo, placebo opposite effect that they're going to make themselves sick every time they take supplements. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, that is definitely powerful. Uh, well, maybe we can talk about some of the things that people can, uh, what, what can people do? Because I think there's a lot people can do. And it's a, uh, despite all the gloom, doom, despair that there is, I think there's a lot that uh, people can do to help themselves and uh, help others. So. So are you talking more about in which aspect, helping themselves from like the jab or from the infection thing? Let's start with the infection because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear and, and I see this on all sides. Um, you know, we're be, being sold fear. That's a really easy thing to sell. <laughs> and, uh, and we're really, it's all on all, all, I see it all around. People are just really afraid and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're grandma killers and they don't want to, you know, yeah. So there, so I think that's a huge problem and there's a lot people can do to help themselves so that they don't need to live in fear because yeah, if you're living in fear, then, you know, you're afraid of dying, then you're really not living. Right. So yeah. So, um, so <laughs> there are some protocols I have up on my website, which is uh, healthassurancemovement.org. You can like get a free account and there's immune prevention and treatment strategies and there's a immune detox for the jab as well on there. Um, if you want like the written, if they don't want to scramble to write this down, but basically we're finding some sort of early treatment is most important. So whether you believe it's a germ and a virus that's infecting you, that's creating you to be sick, or whether you believe that it's a detoxification reaction and that these things are just helping your body handle that better or ease the process. What we're finding that's helpful is basically um, some form of vitamin C, ideally either like a liposomal vitamin C that's a liquid form or a vitamin C with bioflavonoids, which is like a whole food or a whole fruit type of vitamin C that has like rutin or hespiterin or some kind of buffered C or bio C with bioflavonoids, um, some sort of glutathione. Mm -hmm. So like L-glutathione or orthomolecular or liposomal glutathione. And I have a question about that. Should people take, because NAC is a precursor to glutathione, should they take both or should they, is they one? could do both. Um, when someone's actively sick, I like to use the glutathione a little bit more because a lot of people are getting at the first stage with more inflammation, fevers, aches and pains. So I find like the glutathione is a little more like the active ingredient, a little more helpful than the N-acetylcysteine. And I like using the N-acetylcysteine more at the tail end when they're less inflamed, less achy, less fevery, and then you're trying to clean up lung cellular debris and damage. Awesome. Um, so, but either one would be helpful if you have that. Um, a lot of people also like using quercetin and nettles. Mm -hmm. They're combined in a Designs for Health product, or you can get quercetin by itself. You can also get dehist by orthomolecular, which is a really good combo for histamine and that, because a lot of doctors are using antihistamine drugs or herbs for that, which dehist has a little vitamin C and acetylcysteine, um, quercetin and nettles and bromelain from pineapple in it, um, which is a good, bromelain's a good like lung cleaner upper enzyme um, and digestive enzyme. And then we're also using different immune, like antiviral replication or antiviral support herbs like melia, which is also called neem, which is, 
we're using one by Supreme Nutrition called Melia Supreme, but you can also just get like neem from a lot of um, Ayurvedic herbal companies like Banyan Botanicals. And it's basically the, it's similar to like an herbal ivermectin. So some people are using ivermectin, some people are using hydroxychloroquine, some people are using monoclonal antibodies if they have that available, which all are useful, but you want to use all those within the first two, three days or as early as possible because any antiviral replicator you want to use quickly because after five to seven days the virus is replicated enough or we can find that people are excreting a lot more of it out of their system um, at that point. So using ivermectin or using these um, herbs like after day 10 doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, though some people do find benefit with them after that point. Um, so we're using different antiviral replicators like that or adrenal complex by MediHerb, which is Romania and licorice, which both have been shown to help with the viral replication of different COVID um, coronaviruses. Um, and then also we've been using something um, called INF fighter, which is Echinacea, Golden Seal, and Chaparral, which is a good antimicrobial and immune activation. But if you don't, it's hard to get um, by weed botanicals. So we're using also something called Astragalus complex or Andrographis complex by MediHerb, both of which are like immune upregulators to basically like help your immune system activate and fight the inflammation and the infection a little bit more so. Awesome. That's really interesting about neem. I know in uh, Ayurvedics, they typically use that for uh, skin issues and acne. Yeah. Yeah. For acne, um, like ringworm fungal stuff too. It's a really great herb for, with like a ton of uses. Tastes pretty gross too. <laughs> great. Um, awesome. Well, that was super, super helpful. I do have one more question for you that we haven't talked about is to people who are very afraid the they're wearing the the masks and the covering. Do you have thoughts on the masks and potential uh, effects, you know, that it could do? Well, I mean, I think if anything, they might, I always say like logic is fast, science is slow. And I love that. <laughs> a, year, a year plus to do our first like placebo double blind study comparing two towns that were masked or not masked to each other. And the cloth masks were found to do absolutely nothing. And the surgical masks were found to help less than 1% of absolute risk reduction and 10 to 11% of like relative risk reduction. So I think there is some benefit. I think the N95s, even the double or triple masking probably would help a little more than one mask. So if you're going to wear a mask, I think like maybe wearing two or at least wearing an N95 or something that's a better version would make more sense to wear. That said, I think if you are wearing a mask, you want to do your best to also be in a state where you're feeling calm and not scared or not afraid because fear and anxiety is the current number to comorbidity for COVID-19. So you really don't want to be stuck in like a fear state with your mask or putting kids in a fear state like you have to be in a mask or else you're going to cause someone to get sick or you're going to get sick. So I think that mindset is not healthy and can be very harmful. I also think if you're indoors for more than an hour or so, really don't think the masks are that helpful um, at this point, but in passerby moments, potentially the mask could protect you a little bit. Not really for forcing people to wear masks or mandating people to wear masks. I think personal choice and medical exemptions need to be honored. Um, I also think masks do often give a false sense of security where people will be wearing a mask and it'll drip down past nose, especially like I see this with the elderly all the time, like the grandkids and the parents 
and their kids are all trying to like protect their older relatives and they're like, so scared and they're getting tests all the time and they're wearing their masks diligently and they're yelling at the kids for dropping them below their noses and the grandparents are just like completely unaware wearing the masks lopsided walking around the grocery store letting it drop down and they like don't seem to care at all so i think there is an element of like wearing masks properly that would make them more helpful um and a lot of people will wear the masks and think that they're safe when they have the mask on and they'll still get infected or still go through the disease process later anyways right so it it is hard for people when they've like gotten all their jabs three four or five jabs and they've also um, worn the mask like every time they were supposed to or they wore a mask indoors and they still were able to get the virus because viral materials if they are the part that's causing the contagion they can go right through a mask because they're so small it's like mosquitoes through a chain link fence like they're still going to cause problems they'll still get through the mask the mask will block some respiratory particles but viruses are kind of like dust in the air so no mask is going to completely eliminate all odors all dust um, from yeah. outside of it so it might help a little bit it might slow down might give you like more of a window of time to be with someone where they're not going to infect you or you won't catch whatever they're off gassing or whatever energetic resonance is happening mm -hmm. um, and i do believe that if you believe in your mask it's more likely to work so <laughs> yeah right the placebo effect yeah whether or not the mask is truly helping which is why we need double blind placebo randomized controlled trials of like towns that are wearing n95s versus surgical masks or those versus no masks we need those double blind studies because the placebo effect is so powerful um i think we really want to just like know whatever you are doing it's good to believe in it and own it and like believe it's going to help you because that alone is going to give you a good amount of protection as well yeah no absolutely that's so true mind is very very powerful um what about some of the potential so uh, one of the big arguments that i had with a lot of people early you know 2020 was that well but you know you're just worried about the inconvenience the mask can't do any harm um, which, you know, at the time we didn't have as much, although we did from, uh, what, what was it? The uh, Spanish flu, was it? Yeah, yeah, we did have some evidence, but uh, we certainly didn't have evidence this time around. So, but now we, we do have some more evidence that they don't do no harm at all. Certainly not psychologically, but even medically speaking, right? Like medical harm, you mean? Yeah. 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 I a lot of people I'm finding myself, like I'll get acne from them, right? Which could turn into a secondary infection elsewhere in people with lowered immune systems. Um, the mask could, if you are infected, the mask actually could be harboring a secondary bacterial infection. So you could not only just be sick, like we said, from one germ, you could get other germs that then are in the mask, especially if you're reusing the mask, that then could cause a secondary worsening of the infection. Um, a lot of times the masks will cause just like lower, if you're really wearing it like tight and fully, like it's not good to have those on for prolonged periods of time because they can affect some oxygen flow to your lungs and your brain, which is not ideal. Like, yes, your body can compensate, um, but some people will get headaches, especially if they're already anemic or they're already a little depleted, they'll get headaches or they'll get other types of like issues wearing their masks, a little bit of like brain fog or just fatigue. Um, so there definitely are some medical things that most people can adjust. Their bodies are capable of adapting to the stress that most masks put them on them from like a physical standpoint. But I think the mental effect of masks is like far outweighs, especially for children, especially for people who aren't 
who are wearing masks for long periods of time, I think we lose our humanity, we lose our ability to communicate, we lose personal expression, we lose half of our face and how we communicate as humans. So it's dehumanizing people. It's also proven now to slow development and educational development of children, both socially and intellectually. Yeah, so I think yeah. there's tons of harms of wearing them often. So I think if anything, we should be wearing them not at all. So we're actually like not giving that false sense of security. So if you really want to stay safe and away from all these things um, or from other people, then we just like stay farther away. Um, or we wear them just in very limited settings where it makes the most possible sense. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I know the communication aspect being somebody who's hearing impaired and I learned how to speak by reading lips. It's yeah. Was one of the reasons I moved actually, because it was so devastating for me to yeah. try and communicate with people. And they would get so frustrated with me, you know, because I couldn't understand them and they, and they can see that I can see they're talking I'm like, yeah, I know you're talking. It's that, that makes sense in this, this scenario. Like, obviously you're talking and I can see your body language. Doesn't mean I have any idea what you're saying, you know? Right. <laughs> so those are two different things. So yeah. A little difficult. Yeah, exactly. So, well, this was awesome. Do you have anything else you want to leave us with? And, uh, you know, obviously tell everybody where to find you and all that good stuff. But um, I think just uh, trying to remind people to be positive mm -hmm. um, and to not give your belief of reality to your phone or your screen or your TV. Like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so many people believe that what their phone shows them is the reality of the world rather than their lived experiences. Like the Amish communities in Pennsylvania, they basically like they had some infections or some illnesses, they got over it and they're fine now. They went back to living their normal lives. My favorite was when they asked the Amish, they said, uh, why, why, why aren't you affected by it? And they were like, we, we don't have television. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's like 39 states don't have mask mandates and they're doing just as well as 11 states that do. So I feel like um, just trying to remain positive and realize that like, if we weren't, the world in general is much better than what you're seeing on the news or on social media, because the news and the social media wants to promote fear, wants to promote anger. It's actively been exposed and admitted to promoting more anger on Facebook. It's been admitted to promoting more extremism of far left and far right and making you believe that that's really how the world works. But the voices that are more extreme tend to get shared more and go viral faster. So it promotes that kind of hot, debatable extremism. But that's not really how most people in real life are. And I think if most people think about who they communicate with on a daily basis, sure, they might be living in a city where there's more people who are left than right or more right than left. But most people are trying hard. They're trying to do well. They're trying to do the best that they can in this tough time. And I think most people are more moderate than we're led to believe. Yeah, I, I think that's I, I, statistically that would make sense, right? Yeah. Um, so do you feel it sounds like you feel pretty hopeful for the future what what do you foresee um i think i foresee well my hopefulness is i foresee people just being tired of this and going back to normal as soon as possible <laughs> within the next few months i think they'll be like okay i've done this i've taken all the jabs you wanted me to still got the thing still spread the thing still felt like crap and i'm done <laughs> So I think there's a lot of people who are going to be in that camp. I also think there might be some future germ or pandemic that we're made to be afraid of, or if we keep disrespecting nature, we're just going to get less healthy, whether it's a pandemic, um, another variant of the C-19 thing, 
or some other germ, or if it's a new pesticide or a new food product that's like some man-made lab meat that then gets popularized and everybody has to be forced to eat that. Whatever it is, I think if we keep disrespecting nature in gain of function labs or with pesticides or with pressuring animals out of rainforests, whatever it is, I think the main lesson is to respect nature, respect your own health. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that, people are gonna get really sick from something or another thing. And that will keep the, the problem is like the more suffering, the more hardship, the more people do wake up, the more people do wake up to the fact that they need to be healthy, that we need to respect ourselves and each other and nature more. So I think looking for the hope in the darkness that the darkness will wake people up and help them rise like a phoenix from the ashes for a better society and we just have to take this opportunity to teach as many people as possible what the truth is what the big like philosophical lessons are so we can heal and repair for the future i love that yes and i i do believe i always say i think the great awakening will combat the great reset so yeah so here's to hopefully more people waking up and respecting nature i love that and uh, yeah, so to, here's to hope. <laughs> Thank you oh. so much. Yeah, this was this was really great. So we will uh, reconvene in another time. All right. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.